Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for um, all the ways that you meet our needs in your power and your grace and your sovereignty. You are a majestic God. And as we look at the, the book of Isaiah tonight, we're so thankful for just the portrait of, of who you are, the Holy One of Israel, um, the God who is like no other. You will not share your glory with any other. You are the one true living God. And so tonight as we dive into Isaiah, we just want to learn. We want to be amazed. And most of all, we want to see you, Jesus, high and lifted up. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So Isaiah, last week we did Job and we did Amos. And if you remember when we talked about Amos, we talked about how Israel was split between what? A northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom is called Judah. And the northern kingdom is called Israel. And so most of the prophets are either ministering in the northern kingdom or in the southern kingdom. The Israel in the north ends up going off into captivity by Assyria. And eventually, many years later, the southern kingdom goes into captivity by Babylon. And so we've got Isaiah as one of the major, major books. It's, it's really the first, if you look in your Bible, it's really the first of the prophetic books, um, what we would call the major prophets. And Isaiah is probably, just by sheer literature, the most, most scholars call it the grandest of all the Old Testament books as far as just sheer literature, sheer weight, sheer beauty. Um, it's just a masterpiece of... Um, of literature and of God's glory. Um, and we know that Isaiah is the son of Amos, the 8th century prophet, friend, and confidant of Hezekiah. That, I'm sure that means a lot to you. Um, so we'll just skip over all the historical stuff and get right into the, what the scripture is. There's a literary structure. Chapters 1 through 39 are prophecies of judgment, and chapters 40 through 66 are prophecies of mercy. Don't let anybody tell you that the Old Testament is only judgment. It's only discipline. We've seen so far what? Grace in both the Old Testament. There's grace in the New Testament. There's judgment in the New Testament. There's judgment in the Old Testament. God is a God of wrath. God is a God of love. Both of those come together in a lot of these books. Okay, let's look at Isaiah 6. Because this is probably one of the most famous sections of Isaiah. Probably a lot of you, maybe one of your favorite passages in the Old Testament, um, a song, a famous hymn, Holy, 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 has been written about Isaiah 6. And so this is the call of Isaiah the prophet. This is how God calls him. Now, let's just stop. It, some of these things aren't going to be in your notes because these things just pop into my head, and that's okay. We'll just, we'll just go from there. Call narrative, okay? Let's just review a little bit about a call narrative. When I say call narrative, I'm talking about how God calls his servant. So um, we looked at pretty much two call narratives so far in this study. The first one was Moses. Where was Moses called? He was called at the burning bush. So you had a burning bush. You had a, um, an appearance of God, 
you had the issue of holy ground and you had God calling to Moses and Moses saying what? Here am I. And then God sends him, okay? Sends him on a mission. The other call narrative we looked at was Samuel. Now, remember, Moses was an old man when this happened. How old was he? He was like 80 years old when it happened. So he was 80 years old. How old was Samuel when it happened? We really don't know, but he was a young boy. Where was he? He was in the tabernacle next to the lamp. So there was something burning. He was told he was on holy ground because he was in the tabernacle. God spoke to him three times, and what did Samuel say? Here I am, here I am. Then God says, go, go send a message. Okay, go send, you know, go send a message to Eli. Go be sent on a mission. mission. Okay, so we get to Isaiah 6, and we have the call of Isaiah. Now, we've seen these two calls already. Do you think you're going to see some similarities when you get to Isaiah about a call narrative? What do you think is going to show up in Isaiah 6? Are we going to have something burning? Okay, are we going to have an appearance of God? Are we going to have holy ground? Are we going to have a here am I? And are we going to have a send me? Yes. It just plays out a little bit differently in Isaiah, but this is a motif that goes kind of through the Old Testament when God calls these important prophets. So let's look at the call of Isaiah, and um, let's just look at Isaiah 6 together. Verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook, and the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. Okay, so Isaiah is afraid. He fears God. And we talked a little bit about this last week, and I want to expand upon the terror fear and the worship fear of God. And we see this in the life of Isaiah. So fear, the, the concept of fearing God shows up 300 times in the Bible. If you just do like a word study, of fear, you're going to find it show up about 300 times. Now, in Hebrew, the primary word used for fear is yer. Yer. It has two meanings depending on context. Number one, it can mean to be terrified, or two, to be in awe. Now, just a side note on Bible studies. Have you ever heard of Strong's Concordance? Sometimes people like to do word studies where they look up a word. So they'll go and they look up the word fear. And sometimes you'll hear a pastor say, well, if you look up the Hebrew word for fear, it means 
this. And he'll give you the Hebrew word or the Greek word of what it means. That's important. But in addition to doing word studies, what's just as important is context. Okay? Just because the word yar or yare, however you pronounce that, shows up, it could mean in one context to be terrified, same Hebrew word, in another context to be in awe. So just when you do word studies, be careful that you don't just come up with this is what the word means because this is what the lexicon says it means. You've got to look at context. What's going on in the context? And so we've got to ask the question, what type of fear is Isaiah experiencing here? This is a difficult one. It's both. And I'll show you that in just a moment. So there's two types of fear. There's a terrified fear. And we see this in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let's look and see where it first started, this whole idea of fear of the Lord. We're going we're gonna to take a, a journey on what it means to fear the Lord as we look at this Isaiah 6 passage. So it starts with Genesis, with Adam and Eve. After they disobeyed God's direct command not to eat of the tree, and their eyes were opened, and they knew that they had sinned, they hid themselves in shame and terror. Let's read together Genesis 3, 8 through 10. This is right after they had eaten the fruit. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. The very first time the word afraid, fear, shows up in the Bible. What kind of fear is this? Is it a terror fear or worship fear? It's probably more of a terror fear. I know I'm guilty I'm trying to hide from God. I know that I'm shameful. And so the reason I hid from you, God, was because I was afraid. Afraid of what? Punishment. Because God said, don't eat of that tree. The very first time the word fear shows up. Fear, this word also shows up in Exodus. When Moses has the experience with God in the burning bush. Exodus 3, 5-6. through six. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. What kind of fear is that? That's where you really don't know. I mean, context could see that he was maybe terrified or he was awe. Sometimes the word meshes together. But either way, you've got... An idea that, well, what would you do if God spoke to you in a burning bush and the bush didn't burn? And, he, and you hear this voice saying, take off your sandals for your holy ground. I mean, you're going to have some awe and you may have mixed with terror. But either way, you're in the presence of a holy God. So you've got this holiness of God. Take off your sandals. Moses was afraid to look at God. You would be too. Fear is worship. And yet this word, yare or yer, not only carries with it the connotation of being terrified, but more often, it means worship. To fear the Lord is synonymous with worship, a worship fear. Deuteronomy 10, 12 through 13. God says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord God, your Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all His ways, to love Him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. What's the first thing he says there? To fear the Lord. Is this a terror fear? This is more of a worship fear, a serving fear, a reverent fear, a, a following fear. Okay? Worship me alone. Fear in the Psalms, okay? I know it's kind of small, but hopefully you can see it on your sheet. Psalm 19, 9-10. 
The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. There it says the fear of the Lord is clean. The Hebrew word here means pure. Walking in holiness and worship of the Lord are tied to purity. And so this is a worshiping the Lord, fearing the Lord, walking in humbleness before the Lord worshiping him psalm 25 10 through 12 all the paths of the lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies for your namesake O lord pardon my guilt for it is great who is the man who fears the lord him will he instruct in the way that he should choose this whole idea of worshiping trusting psalm 33 8 through 9 let all the earth fear the lord let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him for he spoke and it came to be he commanded and it stood firm let's do a little bit of review on psalms okay what is a definition of the psalm i don't expect you remember this but if you were in my class i'd probably test you on this what's the definition of a psalm it is a song of worship two or more lines that have repetition of meaning to create emphasis. So look at that psalm there. What is the first? Usually in a psalm, the two lines are basically saying the same thing, the same general idea, but in a different way to bring about emphasis. Okay? So in line one of that psalm, what does it say? Let all the earth what? Fear the Lord. Okay? So probably a synonym or a similar word is going to show synonym. I can't spell it, but synonym. The word fear. Okay, look at the next line. Let all the inhabitants of the world, what? Stand in awe. So when you read this psalm, you realize that to fear God is synonymous with standing in awe of Him. Okay? So there's just a a basic psalm that repeats the theme in both lines to bring out emphasis. To fear the Lord means to stand in awe of Him as sovereign creator and to worship Him in humble adoration. Psalm 103, 11 through 12. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His steadfast love towards those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does He remove our transgressions from us. Isn't that amazing that in that same passage with forgiveness of sins, east is from the west, what's our response to the forgiveness of God? Fear. Is it a terror fear? No. It's a worship fear because he has, what, forgiven our sins. At first, Isaiah experiences here, and we'll get back to this, a terror fear. Then something changes to, to change it into a worship fear. Okay? You know, and, and, and it kind of is tied to that, to that psalm there. Psalm 118.4, Let those who fear the Lord say, His steadfast love endures forever. We also see this word, Yahweh, show up in Proverbs. It's how the Proverbs begin in chapter 1 and how it ends in chapter 31. Proverbs 1, 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The way it ends, Proverbs 31, 30, Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. And we looked at this last week in Job 28, 28, And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. So this concept of fearing the Lord shows up 300 times in the Bible. These are just... Some examples of the Old Testament of worshiping, following, loving, adoring God. Okay, here's a good definition of fear. This is from a book 
our, our staff is going through this book right now. Um, it's a really good book. Um, it's by Ed Welch. He's a Christian. He's a Christian counselor, a Christian psychologist. Very solid. Not a not a you know not not from a worldly perspective, but from a biblical perspective. And the book is called When People Are Big and God Is Small. So um, here's his definition of fear. He writes, The fear of the Lord means reverent submission that leads to obedience. And it, it is interchangeable with worship, rely on, trust, and hope in. The Bible teaches that God's people are no longer driven by terror fear or fear that has to do with punishment. Instead, we are blessed with worship fear the reverential awe motivated more by love and the honor that's due him. It's a pretty good definition there of the difference between terror fear and worship fear. And, and that, that terminology I really got from Ed Welch in his book because I like the way that he breaks those down. I mean, it's a theme that goes through the Bible when you just trace the meaning of the word, but um, that's a really good definition. Now let's look at the New Testament, okay? The New Testament word for fear is phobos. What, what word do we get from that? Phobia. Okay, and again, depending on the context, we see that phobos can either mean terror or trembling or reverent submission and worship. Listen to the words of Jesus in Matthew 10, 28-31. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not... Therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. Now, if you read that passage, you're like, Jesus, which one is it? Are we to fear or to fear not? Because what does he say in both of those? He says, fear what? Fear God because what can he do? He can throw you into hell. But the next verse, it says, he's got the hairs on your head numbered. And so you are more valuable than these sparrows, so fear not. What's the first type of fear in this passage? terror fear because God can send you to hell what's the other type of fear not it's a worship fear or don't terror fear worship fear because God knows you and loves you and has adopted you and you are you are his now you are his child he knows the hairs on your head does that make sense it's kind of sometimes Jesus says the statements and you're like I have to think a little bit about that yes Robert did you have a question Where the flock enters, we stay within the fence. Um, is that good? And the fence is sort of the point where you, your fear changes. Right. Where you, if you go outside the fence, then you should be afraid that you're going to suffer bad things because you're outside the protection of God. While, but within God's protection, you don't have to be afraid because you know that you're not going to be judged because you're being obedient and right. not. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, and as, and as God's children, we said last week, we don't relate to God as a judge anymore because He's our Father. We relate to Him as a Father. Um, lost people relate to Him as a judge, but not, not believers. Acts, and in the epistles. Acts 9.31, So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. What type of fear? The church was walking in a worship fear. They were worshiping God. They were fearing God. 2 Corinthians 7.1, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. 
Philippians 2, 12 through 13, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with what? Fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, I could preach a whole sermon on that one passage. There's a lot there. But it talks about phobos and tremos. The Greek word for tremble is tremos. We get our word tremble. Fear and trembling there. And working out our salvation. Not working for your salvation, but working it out. Fear and revelation. Revelation eleven eighteen. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time of the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Those who fear your name. Oftentimes in the book of Revelation, there are two categories of people. There are those who dwell on the earth... And there are those who are the overcomers or those who fear God. These are lost people. These are saved people. Those who, every time you go through Revelation, when, he's taught, when John says those who dwell on the earth, those are the lost people. They're not Christians. Even though we dwell on the earth, that's not our true home. It's not our home. Revelation 14, 7, And he said with a loud voice, Fear God. And give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. See how the words worship and glorify are all intertwined there with the word fear? Revelation 19, 5-6, And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Sounds like the Hallelujah chorus, doesn't it? Fearing the Lord. Okay, now let's go back to Isaiah, okay? Here's the issue. He is in the temple, and he sees, well, what does he see? First of all, Isaiah experiences the royal sovereignty of God. He has an encounter with the kingly majesty of God in the temple. What does he see? He sees a throne high and lifted up, and the train of, the, of his robe filled the temple. Okay, who normally sits on a throne and has a robe? A king. So here's the question. Who exactly did Isaiah see? Jesus, John 12, 41, says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him, meaning Jesus. Because God the Father doesn't have a body, does he? He's spirit. So, for, for, so, so this is what we would call a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. It's what, what theologians would call a Christophany. So it's where Jesus shows up in the flesh before the virgin birth in special ways in the Old Testament. So Isaiah sees Jesus on the throne in his kingly majesty. And how big is this robe? It fills the entire temple. Okay? So not only that, but he's confronted with the absolute holiness of God, not just the kingly majesty of God, but the holiness of God. Now, there are these flying creatures called the seraphim. And what are they crying out? Holy, holy, holy 
is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. There's a moth in here. Um, Holy, holy, holy. This is the ultimate characteristic of God. Now, we talked about this a lot. Nowhere else in the Bible do we have this threefold definition of God. It doesn't mean that God's not love. It doesn't mean that God's not um, merciful or God's not powerful. But holiness is the only thing that's to the third power. Holiness to the third power. So every other characteristic of God is holy. So his love is holy. His mercy is holy. His wrath is holy. His justice is holy. If there's one defining characteristic of God, it's his holiness. Maybe the moth will leave. If not, it will be a distraction. But we'll be all right. It's a flying creature. Not a seraphim, but it's a, it's a moth. So these flying creatures, okay? The word seraphim means, the, the actual Hebrew word for seraphim means burning ones. Burning ones. Now, remember we talked about when God shows up in his holiness, what often happens? Something burns, okay? Whether it's a bush, whether it's a flying creature, whether it's a mountain at Mount Sinai, whether it is a lamp in the temple, whether it's God coming back on the final day with fire from heaven, uh, it, it, it represents both judgment and holiness. Now, here's the question. What are these seraphim doing? They, how many wings do they have? Six wings, okay? With one set of wings... What are they covering? Their face, the other wings, they're covering their feet, and the other, they're flying. Now, what's the symbolism of this? Why are they covering their face? God is too holy to look upon. Even for a flying creature that's in heaven close to God. The youth are doing something. Sounds fun. (laughs) Sounds more fun than what we're doing. No one can see the living God and live. Even those, and it's interesting, when you look at the book of Revelation, even those that are closest to the throne of God still have to cover their face in the presence of God. Remember when, when Moses was put in the cleft of the rock because no one can see the backside, and he saw God's backside glory? The seraphim are covering their eyes. Okay, why are they covering their feet? This is holy ground. It's some symbolism of we are, in ho- we are in holy ground. We can't even step here. We can't see God. And then with the other ones, they're flying. Now, you could say, well, that's just so they can stay afloat. <laughs> well, maybe. I think it means they're ready and willing to be obedient to whatever God calls them to do. They're ready. They're willing to serve. That, that's what the creatures that God has created closest to him in the throne room, they, don't cover, they cover their face because they don't want to look at God. They cover their feet because it's holy ground, and they're flying. They're at God's beck and call, ready to do whatever he calls them to do. They're immediately obedient and ready. Now, what's Isaiah's response to seeing this? Because what else happens? The foundations of the threshold shake. The voice of him who called, the house was filled with smoke. Okay, earthquake, smoke, flying creatures yelling back and forth to each other, holy, holy is Lord of God, my Christ on the throne. Does, does Isaiah go up to Jesus and give him a high five and say, give me a Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt because that's what I want. What does Isaiah do? It is one of utter terror this is terror fear at its peak here he fears the lord what does he say verse 5 woe is me woe is me literally in the original language we don't quite get the force of this in our modern context but when isaiah says woe is me he's literally pronouncing a curse on himself he knows he's toast he knows he's about to die He knows that he cannot be in the presence of a holy God and live. So basically, it's a way of just saying, God, just kill me now because I know it's going to happen soon. 
I can't be here. Woe is me. It's not like, woe is me, my life. It's not like Eeyore. It's like, I'm dead, and I'm going to be struck any minute now. And then he says, I am lost. Maybe some of your translations say, I'm undone, I'm ruined, I'm unraveled. Literally, it means Isaiah was coming apart at the seams. He was unraveling. He was experiencing a spiritual disintegration. He knew he was going to be destroyed. He understood his specific guilt. This was emotional terror, if there ever was terror, in the presence of a holy God. And he absolutely knew what was coming next. And it even gets even scarier when these flying creatures start coming at you with a coal off the altar. What's going on here? He is terrified. And what does he do? He, he confesses his particular sin. What's his particular sin? I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now, we don't know if Isaiah had a cussing problem, or we don't know if he just had a, you know, his mouth got him in trouble, but he specifically confesses the sin of his mouth. I have a foul mouth. His speech was corrupt, and not only him, but he lived in a corrupt nation. He was very aware of his unworthiness, his guilt. He was in the holy presence of the living God and his personal sin was so great in the light of God's holiness that he experienced this unraveling. And basically, um, he says, I'm ruined, I'm lost, I, I call a curse upon me. I know that my, my mouth is evil. I live among a people whose mouth is evil. I'm confessing my specific sin of evil speech. Now, here's a great quote from R.C. Sproul in his book, The Holiness of God, which everybody should read top 10 reading of all-time books. Um, this is a great quote from R.C. Sproul, one of my favorite quotes from R.C. Sproul. Here we go. When the Bible calls God holy, it means primarily that God is transcendentally separate. He is so far above and beyond us that He seems almost totally foreign to us. God is too great for us. He's too awesome. He makes difficult demands on us. He's the mysterious stranger who threatens our security. In His presence, we quake and tremble. Meeting Him personally may be our greatest trauma. I love that last quote. Meeting Him personally may be our greatest trauma without a mediator, without Christ. Can you just barge into the presence of God, into the presence of a holy God without Christ and expect to live? No. Ultimately, what does Isaiah see here? What does he say? My eyes have seen who? The King, the Lord of hosts. Again, if we're to have a proper fear of the living God, we need to have our eyes open to both the royal sovereignty of God and the absolute holiness of God. But is that where it ends? Does it end with terror or fear? Is Isaiah just at the point of disintegration? He's emotionally in travail. He's terrified. He's toast. Is that how it ends? No. Here's the beauty of the atonement. You may say, I don't see an atonement in here. Well, let me teach you the word, the Hebrew word for atonement. The flying creatures, look at verse 6. One of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth. Okay, just when you think things got bad enough, <laughs> this flying creature comes at him with the tong from the altar with this burning coal and comes right where? Towards his mouth, which was what? His point of confession. That's where he confessed his sin, was with his mouth. Why not somewhere else? It was to address his specific sin of his dirty mouth. And notice the glorious announcement of the gospel. Does this burning coal destroy Isaiah? 
No, it cleanses him. Listen to what it says there in verse 7. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. The word atoned for really means to cover. That's where the word kafur, kapur, yom kapur, the day of atonement, the day of covering, to cover sins. Now, Psalm 133-4 is a rhetorical question that all of us know what the answer is. If you, our Lord, should mark iniquities, I think the NIV says, if you, O Lord, should keep a record of wrong, who could stand? But with you there's forgiveness that you may be feared. What's the answer? If God kept a record of sin, would any of us be able to stand? No. But with God, what is there? There is forgiveness. And what's the response to being forgiveness? Or for, for being forgiven? Fear. What kind of fear comes after forgiveness? Terror fear or worship fear? Worship fear. Okay, so at this moment, Isaiah goes from being terror feared, terrified. Okay, he's, he's gone from having this terror fear of God. And then something changes and makes him go into a worship fear. What's that one thing that changes? The atonement. Now, obviously, this is not Christ dying on the cross because this is the Old Testament, but it's a picture, right? It's a type and shadow of the forgiveness that comes through Jesus when He cleanses us from being an enemy of God where we should fear God to being a child of God where we can worship God. And that's what that psalm says. When God forgives us of our sins, when He atones for our sins, when He takes our guilt away, the response is to fear Him in a worship fear. Now, let's see Isaiah's response. What does he do? And he heard the voice of the Lord, this is verse 8, saying, Whom shall I send and who shall go for us? Then he said, Here am I, send me. Okay, so we have the call of Isaiah. How does he respond? In obedient worship. He obeys the call of the Lord on his life to go preach the message to the nation of Israel. His response now is not, I'm going to die and be annihilated because of my sin. His response now is, thank you so much for your glorious forgiveness, and now I gladly obey you and fear you with a lifestyle of worship. Does that make sense? Now, here's the interesting thing about Isaiah. Okay, after this amazing, amazing experience with Christ on the throne and the flying creatures and the forgiveness, listen to what comes next and see how encouraged you would be after you just said, after you just said okay, I'm going. I'm going to go. I'm going to preach. I'm fired up. I'm going to go preach to the people. Here's what happens. Listen to what God says. Look at verse 9. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and their blind eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. What's God saying to Isaiah? You're going to go preach, and nobody's going to listen to you. They're going to be blind. They're going to be deaf. They're going to be disobedient. You keep preaching to them. And what does Isaiah say? Well, how long am I going to have to do that? And God says, yeah. For... But what is one of the themes in Isaiah that I'm just going to touch on briefly is the theme of a remnant. Until there's a remnant. What does the word remnant mean? 
a, a group left over from the whole, okay? There's always going to be a remnant. In our day, we would say it's the true church. Does everybody who claim to be a Christian, or is everybody who claims to be a Christian a Christian? No, only those who are true believers, okay? And so when things get tough and when pressure comes from the culture and, and persecution comes, what happens? Those that are true believers are going to endure. Those who are not are going to be like the wheat and the chaff, right? There's a lot of parables. As a matter of fact, when you go to Matthew, we won't do this, but when you go to Matthew's gospel and Jesus gives the parable of the soils, he quotes this right here, this part of Isaiah saying, you're going to tell, I'm going to speak in parables and a lot of people aren't going to understand me. But those who have ears to hear will hear. So those who are true believers will remain faithful to Christ, but there are a lot of people who will like Jesus but not truly be believers in Jesus. Does that make sense? We've talked a lot about this in, last, in other classes, the difference between a profession of faith and a possession of faith. A lot of people who profess faith, but they don't possess faith. Okay. All right. Should we warn people of the fear of God? Should we even talk about terror fear at all? I guess what I'm asking is, where's the balance? If everything's on worship fear and not on terror fear, how can that become unbalanced? Do people have anything to... Do lost people really have anything to... Let me just ask this. Do lost people have any... Should lost people fear God? Why? Because what that passage in Jesus said, they, he has the right to throw them into hell. What's the most loving thing we can do to a lost person? To tell them about that they should fear God. If we don't tell them that, then, why, then we're not being loving. Because basically we're saying, there's not, there, it's not really that big of a deal. You don't really need to fear God because there is no judgment. You understand what I'm saying? So we should warn people of the fear of God. And we see that in the New Testament. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 5.11? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Paul says the fear of the Lord is his motivation to persuade others. Persuade others or plead with others and urge others to do what? Let's go on down in that passage in verse 18, 2 Corinthians 5.18-21. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making an appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are ambassadors of reconciliation. What does it mean to be reconciled? It means two parties were what? At odds, at war, they were enemies. We are at enmity with God and we need to be reconciled back into a right relationship with God because if you're not reconciled, if you die without being reconciled to God, you will face the judgment of God and that should terrify you. Does that make sense? But once you're reconciled to God as His child, you should never be terrified, but you should worship Him gladly because of the grace He's done in your life. Does that make sense? Okay. So we see that theme in Isaiah. Now, let's go to Isaiah. This is not in your notes, but I want to I go to Isaiah 40. As I thought more about this, I thought, let's just spend all night on Isaiah because, I mean, we're not even going to get to Jeremiah. And we may not even, but I want to show you, this, this is not in your notes, so you may just want to, 
This is going to be kind of more off the cuff. We're just going to kind of go through chapters 40 through 46 really have some great statements about the sovereignty, the majesty, the uniqueness of God. This is really where God puts all of the idols on trial. Basically, the dumb, dead, wooden idols. God basically says, you know, you know after you've gone and um, cut down wood and used it for, you know, making a campfire, you know, make yourself come alive and, and do all these things I can do. And, and basically, you know, chiding Israel for building an idol out of the same wood they use for firewood and things like that. So what I want us to do is to look at chapter 40, and I just want to point out, just, just kind of go through some, some key passages here. So look at chapter 40, verse 8, because let me just give you another, another issue here. Next to the Psalms, Isaiah is the most quoted book in the New Testament, next to Psalms. So some of these quotes that we're going to see, you'll see show up in the New Testament. So Isaiah 40, verse 8, The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of God will stand forever. We see that in 1 Peter. Okay. Look at verse 10. Behold, chapter 40, verse 10, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in His arms, he will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with the young. What, what, Im- what imagery do we see there of God? A shepherd, a gentle shepherd, but also a ruling shepherd. But he's going to tend his flock. He's going to carry them in his bosom. What, think about that imagery. If you're struggling with, does God love me? Or I'm having a bad day. Or things are really just going wrong in my life. Read that passage, and what imagery comes to your mind? God carries you in his bosom like a little lamb. Does that give you encouragement? What, is it, what, is, I mean, what does that mean? What, what imagery comes in your mind? God, God holds you close to his side and won't let you go. He's going to shepherd you. Look at verse 15. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales puts things into perspective when you think about presidential elections and different to world rulers. What is God saying? These nations are like a drop in the bucket. Now look at verse 18. To whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? The answer is no one. No one. Look at verse 25. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and see who created these who brings out their hosts by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, no one is missing. He's talking about the stars. He brings out the stars by night, knows them by name. Now, I don't have all the facts and figures, but there are like millions of stars, billions and trillions of Donna's things. He knows more about astronomy than I do. Think about God knows every single one of those by name. Not that he just knows about them, but he put them there in the first place. That's unfathomable. And look at verse 28. Have you not known, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no mind, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk 
and not faint. Again, that whole imagery there in chapter 40 of God being a sustainer. Not only is He a creator, but He's a sustainer. He's a shepherd. He sustains you. Now look at verse chapter 41, verse 4. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He. I am the first and the last. What does Jesus say in Revelation? I am the Alpha and the Omega. Okay, look at verse 13. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I am making you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. I'll let you go back and read the whole imagery there of what that means. But God is going to do something for the nation. Also, look at chapter 42, verse 6. Remember when Jesus in Luke, I think it's chapter 4, goes back to his hometown of Nazareth and sits down and starts reading from the prophet Isaiah. And it talks about opening blind eyes and setting captives free and doing all these things. And he closes the scroll and says, okay, that's talking about me. And they want to take him out on a cliff and throw him off because he claims to be God. Right here is where Jesus read from. Isaiah 42, verse 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Behold, they spring forth. I tell you of them. Verse 8 is probably one of the most important verses. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other. Is God going to share His glory with anybody? No. I am the Lord. That is my name. I give my glory to no other. Okay, look at chapter 43. Verse 1, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I've called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. Isn't that a powerful statement of God there? I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are precious. I love you. He doesn't say I'm going to take you out of the water, does he? When you, when you go through the water, when you walk through the fire, what does he say? I will be with you. He doesn't say, I'm going to take you out of the fire. I'm going to take you out of the water. He just says, when you go through these trials, I will be with you because I've called you by name. You're mine. I've got you in the palm of my hand. I've got you like the sheep in the bosom. Fear not. Fear not. You're precious. Why were we created? Look at verse 6. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and I made. Ultimately, why are we created? For 
God's glory. What's the Westminster Shorter Catechism say? The chief end of man is to glorify God and worship Him or enjoy Him forever. That's why we were created. Okay, let's go down to chapter 43, look at verse 10. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am He. Before me no God, lowercase, was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. How many times is God saying, I am the Lord, I, I am the Lord. There, there's no other God besides me. I'm not going to share my glory with another. I am the Lord. Then this is an exciting verse. Look at verse 25. I am, I, I am He. Now, does it sound like God's stuttering? I, I am He. Sometimes in language we use that as repetition to, to bring emphasis. I. That's when Jesus gave the I am statements, like I am the bread of life. In the original Greek, it's ego I me. It's the Greek ego I me. And literally, if you were to translate it, it would be I, comma, I am the bread of life. Now, that sounds weird to, to translate it that way, but if we were to be literally, literally translating that, Jesus would say, I, comma, I am the bread of life. Now, what does that sound like? It sounds like a lot of language in Isaiah. I, comma, I am the Lord. So when Jesus was saying that, he was equating himself back to the Holy One of Israel as revealed in the Old Testament, especially Isaiah. Now, look at verse 25. I... I am he who does what? Blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Praise the Lord. Okay? Look at chapter 44, verse 6. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Look at verse 8. Fear not. Nor be afraid. Have I not told you from old and declared it? Are you my witnesses? Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. How many times does he keep saying what? Fear not, fear not, fear not. Don't have a terror fear of me now because you're in relationship with me. Have a worship fear of me because I am the God. There is no other. I'm not going to share my glory with another. I'm majestic. I'm sovereign. But I'm also your heavenly father and you are precious to me. Okay, let's go to chapter 45. Look at verse 5. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Go down to chapter, or go down to the very, very last line in verse 18. I am the Lord, there is no other. Go to verse 21. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Wasn't it I the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn from my mouth has gone out in righteousness the word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. What does that sound like? Philippians 2. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And do we see a gospel call there? What is God saying? Turn to me. Shuv. Remember that word we've been talking about? Repent. Turn to me and be saved. Who? All the ends of the earth. Because why? What's the ultimate reason why we should trust Christ for salvation? Is it so we can go to heaven? 
That's just a byproduct. Is it so we can have our sins forgiven? Yes, but that's just a byproduct. What's the ultimate reason why we turn and have faith in Christ? Because we get God, and there is no other. And it's for God's glory alone. That's why we come to Christ, for God's glory. Now look at chapter 46, verse 9. This is probably where we'll end this little section here. For I am, or remember the former things of old, for I am God, there is none other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. That's probably one of the strongest verses of God's sovereignty in the book of Isaiah. My counsel will stand. I'm going to accomplish everything I purpose. I am God, there is no other. I declare the end from the beginning. I know how it started. I know how it's going to end. I declare all things. I, I do all things for my glory. And so... You see this repeated theme in the book of Isaiah about this whole section here. Of, it's really, if you, if, you, if you trace the whole section, God's putting the, the false idols on trial. And he's coming up and saying, there is no other God. I, I, I am God. Okay. Now let's go to Isaiah 53, which is another very, very famous, probably my next to Isaiah 6 and Isaiah 53 are my two favorite parts of Isaiah. Uh, just because Isaiah 53 is so graphic. And I mean that in a good way. A graphic depiction of Christ's suffering on the cross in the Old Testament. Okay? So what I've done for you here is we're going to kind of do like a little running commentary. Okay? I'm just going to put the scriptures up there. And in the, the brackets or the, the bold there, I'm going, to, I'm going to kind of give you what the Hebrew word means there. Just, you know, when you read in your English, you can get the, mat, you can get the magnitude of it in your English. But I've kind of I've done a word study on this passage pretty extensively, and I've kind of put some some highlights in there to kind of get us to understand a little bit more the power of this of this of this servant song, the servant of the Lord. So let's look at chapter fifty three. Um, let's just start in verse three. We, we'll start there. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Okay, so let's start here in cha- in verse four. Okay. Surely, that's a very strong introductory word in the Hebrew drawing our attention to the fact that this person who Isaiah is drawing attention to needs to really be paid attention to. Surely, he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten. That word smitten and stricken really means the blow of God's judgment, God's wrath. So Jesus was a recipient of God's wrath. Afflicted there means divine discipline. Now here's a question. Why was Jesus the recipient of God's wrath? Okay, he's a substitute. In our culture today, even among some Christians that I will talk to, what I just said is very offensive to them. Why would it be offensive to talk about God's wrath? Okay, I love you, Debbie. God. <laughs> if God has to show wrath, that means that we've done something to earn his wrath, which means we've sinned against God. And if we've sinned against God, we're accountable to God. And ultimately, people don't want to be accountable to God. And so they deny God's wrath because they don't want to face their own sin they don't want to they don't want to be in a position like isaiah when he saw god on the or christ on the throne so when jesus dies as a substitute 
you know, let's, I'll just write a big word up here, okay? Penal substitutionary substitutionary atonement. This has been a key doctrine in the church for centuries, but it's 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 losing it's losing a lot of weight in our culture today. What does penal mean? It has to deal with being penalized or disciplined. So the word for punishment. Punishment, guilt, penalized, condemned, all, all the words dealing with like a, a somebody who deserves to be judged. What does substitutionary mean? In the place of. Someone's taking what? Someone's taking that punishment. Somebody's being condemned. Somebody's taking that guilt in the place of someone else. That's what the word substitutionary means. It comes from the word substitute. Okay, and we looked at the word atonement. Atonement means to forgive or to cover or to take away or to absorb God's wrath. So when you take this whole terminology, penal substitutionary atonement, it's just a fancy way of saying Jesus took the sin that we deserve to be punished for on Himself as our substitute, bearing God's wrath in our place so that God's wrath wouldn't come upon us. And when we see Isaiah 53, we see that graphically displayed with just the wording that Isaiah uses, okay? So this whole smitten by God, struck by God, afflicted by God, who is doing this to Jesus? God right here. Why is God doing this to Jesus? So He doesn't have to do it to us. Some people argue this is, well, this is divine cosmic child abuse. God's just beating up His Son. Is that what it is? If Jesus didn't have, was it God also? Which would seem yeah. that it was also Jesus' yes. plan from the beginning. Yes, okay, let's talk about the eternal counsel of the Godhood, okay? <laughs> the Godhead. In eternity past, God the Father, <laughs> Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in perfect fellowship, decided amongst themselves to orchestrate the plan of redemption. God would send Jesus, Jesus would go voluntarily, He would die on the cross, and then the Holy Spirit would come after Christ had gone back up to heaven to be poured out in those that would trust in Him. Okay? God didn't make Jesus do it against His will, and yet Jesus had the authority from the Father to do it voluntarily. So Jesus was never a victim when He went to the cross. It wasn't like Jesus went kicking and screaming against God and then He and God were frustrated and God made Him do it and Jesus was a belligerent son and went to the cross because, you know, God's making me do this. No, in the eternal counsel of the Trinity before the foundation of the earth, the three persons of the Trinity came into perfect agreement to execute the plan of salvation. So there's no frustration among the Trinity. That's some deep waters to talk about. But when God is inflicting this upon Jesus... Jesus voluntarily takes it knowing that it's the only way that wrath would be atoned for so that sinners could go free. So let's keep looking here. Verse 5, He was wounded for our transgressions. Now, the Hebrew language has different words for sin. The word transgression, when you see transgression show up, what that really means is a willful, deliberate rebellion against God, to trespass, to defy, to disobey, to, to say, God, you know, get out of my face. I'm going to do what I want. 
I'm going to go my own way. Okay. He was crushed. This is used for people being trampled to death. Another word for sin is iniquities, okay? If, if transgressions are, are, transgressions is usually the attitude or the action that we have towards God. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to do my own thing. Iniquity is more of our nature. It means to be perverted, to be corrupt. We are corrupt in nature because of what Adam and Eve did. So we commit sins because first and foremost, we are sinners. It's not the other way around. Our committing sins doesn't make us sinners. We are sinners inherently and we commit sins because of our nature. So we are sinners by both action and by nature. Okay? Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have turned, have gone astray. Everyone in his own way. The Lord has laid upon him the iniquities of us all. Who has laid upon him the iniquity of us all? The Lord. God has laid upon him. He was oppressed. That word means physical brutality. He was afflicted. Now, this is an interesting Hebrew word. As I look this up, it, it means humiliated, but the way it's worded in the Hebrew means Jesus kept himself in a state of humble submissiveness. What does Philippians tell us? He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, death on a cross. He wasn't a victim, but he voluntarily chose to be obedient to death by submitting himself to God's plan. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter and like a sheep before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. We know that when you go back to the Gospels and Jesus is interrogated by Pilate, we see this come into the play. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who consider that he was cut off. That word cut off means a violent death, separation from God. He was forsaken. What did Jesus cry out on the cross? Eli, Eli, Lamech, Sekbachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've been cut off. I've been separated. Out of the land of the living, stricken. That's the heavy hand of discipline for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death. Okay, we know what happened there, right? Joseph of Arimathea purchased the tomb for Jesus, a rich man, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Three times Pilate said, I find no fault in him. There was no reason why Jesus should have ever been um, charged with, with treason or with crime. Now here's where it gets interesting. Verse 10, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. What was God's will? To crush his son. Not because God is angry at Jesus, not because God is cruel, but because in God's way of doing things, the only way our sin can be punished is if His Son comes as a substitute, and it was God's will to do that. He's put into grief. When His soul makes an offering for sin, He shall see His offspring. So this is an amazing thing. When Jesus is dying on the cross, suffering, what does it mean He sees His offspring? Who's the offspring of Jesus that He sees when He's dying on the cross? Us. All those for whom Christ died and would believe in Him. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hands. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his not, he shall see and be satisfied. That's, that's amazing. When Jesus is dying on the cross, he's satisfied with what he's doing because he knows the outcome. God's justice will be, um, God's justice will be meted out upon him, and God's love will be poured out upon sinners. 
the substitutionary atonement will take place and Jesus will be satisfied with that. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. There's justification by faith alone there. And he shall bear their iniquities. Again, that word bear means to shoulder, have the weight of God's wrath against sin on himself. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That word intercession in the Hebrew language is an interesting word. It really means, it really comes from the root word to reach out or to introduce us into God's presence, to grant us access. Romans 5, um, actually it should be Romans 5, 1. I don't know why it says Romans 4, 25 to 5. Romans 5, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, the many to be accounted righteous, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through Him, we've also obtained what? Access. Some translations say an introduction. Here's the imagery in the original language in, in the Romans there that Paul uses. God is in, it's the idea of the king being in his throne room. And you can't just barge into the throne room of the king. You have to be introduced. You have to be like the president. You couldn't just walk into the, the Oval Office. You'd have to have a what? An invitation and an escort. Somebody would have to bring you through the halls of the White House. Somebody would have to come and present you to the president. That's what Jesus has done with God. He's taken us, who were God's enemies, through the cross. He's reconciled us, and He's brought us into the very throne room of God and presented us before God and said, Now, these are your children. I have died for them. You have now, now, child of God, Christian, you have access to God. And you stand, what? In this grace in which we stand. And what does that cause? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Isaiah 53. All right. I guess I, that's what we just talked about, God's sovereignty. Isaiah 55. Let's read Isaiah 55. And um, this is probably... We'll, we'll probably go... Well... Let's just look at this. This is, a, this is kind of a pretty psalm. Pretty psalm. Pretty Isaiah. Pretty, pretty chapter in Isaiah. Pretty Isaiah. Pretty, a pretty chapter in Isaiah. Yeah. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? and your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligent to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Okay, let me just talk to you about what happened in the ancient culture there. When you guys go to the grocery store and you want to buy water, what do you do? You go to the water aisle at Walmart and there's Dasani and there's Aquafina. There's water galore. Back then, they lived in the desert, right? You had traveling water salesmen that would come into the town square and say, I've got water for sale. And everybody would line up and go to the water salesman to get water that you had to pay for. And if you were really, really rich, you could go get milk because milk was... was so in, in a desert parched land, water was a commodity. And so what God is presenting himself here is a water salesman. And God comes in and says, come to me, drink, be satisfied, but you don't have to pay for it. It is free. Come, everyone who thirsts, does that sound like the Sermon on the Mount? What does Jesus say? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after God's righteousness. 
Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come by me. Now let's go down to um, verse 3. Incline your ear, come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Does that mean God somehow disappears and he can't be found again? Why is that a warning? Seek God while he may be... Okay, before judgment comes or before you die. It's an urgency here to say... There's an urgency that when we present the gospel to people, obviously God is sovereign over their salvation and he will regenerate them when God determines to regenerate them. But we have a responsibility to urge, to plead, to weep, to, um, to warn... Because there may be a time when it's too late. There may be a time when it's too late. But notice what happens when you return. Let him return to the Lord. What will you experience when you turn, when you repent? Compassion. Our God will, how will he pardon you? Abundantly. He will abundantly pardon. So a lot of people, when you're sinning, Let's talk about Christians for a moment. Let's not talk about lost people because I assume most of you in this room are believers. When we sin in our lives and when we disobey God, what's our first tendency? Our first tendency is what? To run away from God and to hide from God and to think God hates me, God doesn't love me, I must be moved beyond His His grace, I don't want to go into His presence because I feel unworthy. Is that what we're supposed to do? Whether we feel like We may feel like that, but what are we supposed to do? Draw near to me, God says, and I will draw near to you. Our first reaction is to want to run from God, but his, his call to us is don't run from me. Come to me. Yes, own up to what you did is wrong. Own up that what you did is sinful. But remember, my son paid for that for you on the cross, and you will be abundantly pardoned. But a lot of people don't want to do that because they feel like, I can't forgive myself, I'm too guilty, God would never forgive me. And so it, it creates a cycle to where the more that you run from God, the harder it is to what? Come back and then you get more hardened and then you, you, know, you tend to kind of go on your own way and tell God, if you're a true child of God, what does God do? He smacks you or He disciplines you or gets your attention some way. Okay, look at verse 8. This is what we talked about a little bit last week when we talked about, remember that big word we talked about last week in Job? Anybody Remember? The inscrutability of God. I don't expect you to remember that, but uh, God cannot be understood. He's, he's fully um, other than us. But look at, look at verse 8 of chapter 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snows come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So, we've heard God's word does not return void. What does that mean? 
Does that mean if you present the gospel to someone and they don't ever trust Christ for salvation that somehow you failed or God failed? Let me ask you a trick question. This may be hard. Is God glorified when someone rejects the gospel? It's a trick question. God is glorified because you presented it and were obedient. But that person has made a choice to reject God and obviously he's not bringing glory to God. But it doesn't mean that God failed. It doesn't mean that somehow you didn't close the deal. It just means that when you're obedient to share God's word, your whole responsibility is to what? Scatter the seed. After it leaves your mouth, do you have any responsibility at that point? Can you create the harvest? Now, you can water their life by being a good neighbor, by loving them, by praying for them. But ultimately, when the, bite, when the word leaves your mouth, that's where the Holy Spirit takes over and does only what the Holy Spirit can do. And it may take years. And it may take multiple exposures to the word of God. Remember that little diagram I did on Sunday morning? The culture that we live in is so post-Christian. It may take people multiple, multiple exposures to the word of God before they ever really, the light bulb comes on and God God does work in their heart, but we should never look at sharing the gospel and nobody responds as a failure. When you share the gospel and nobody responds positively, that's not a failure. What is evangelism? Most people think evangelism is people getting saved. That is not evangelism. Evangelism is sharing the gospel and leaving the results up to God. Yes, Lori. I'm going to come over here so you get up on the mic. I don't know if I'm, my thinking is right on that or not, but when it says that God's word will never return void, I find great comfort in that, that whether they reject it or not, it's there to stay. Yeah. Is that true? I mean... That word? Yeah, that it's planted in their heart whether they've received it or not. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. God, God's word is powerful. It's sharper than a double-edged sword. It will do its work. And so once it's planted in them, only God is the one that can... I guess cause it to, to That's grow. That's I love, like giving people promise books and yeah. things like that that just is, is pure than scripture because yeah. I figure that's truth. And yeah. You can, it never hurts to, yeah. That's why, like, when you go to a, that's why when you go to a hotel, there's a Gideon's Bible in there. I mean, just by somebody reading the Bible, you know, or, or a person that you've prayed for and you maybe, like, you know, um, I think of you, Carrie. I'm not going to pick on you, but can I pick on you? Is it okay? In a good way. I remember when Carrie first came into my office, when we first came, and I, I don't know if you remember this, Carrie, where you had a lot of questions and you were doubting God and, and you just kind of angry and mad at the world. And I think I shared the gospel with you, and I didn't see you for like two years. And all of a sudden you started coming back and going to the women's study and getting involved in the, in the women's Bible study. And the women started loving on you, and you started growing and asking questions. And eventually, you know, God saved you, and you went to the new members class, and all these things came into focus, and you got baptized. But... You know, it was one of those things where it was like, I could have looked, we could have looked at Carrie and said, well, you know, I present the gospel to her in my office and, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with her, but obviously God's word did not return void. It, 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 it took root in your life and it may have taken you on a journey. And I hope I didn't embarrass you by saying that, but it, I was just thinking of an example of somebody that you think, man, I share with this person once and I never see him again. Well, they may show up in church two years later and get saved. And not because you did anything, but because God used your word that you spoke to them and maybe other people as well. You're not the only one that's speaking truth into people's lives. There's, there's a lot of people that are hearing the gospel. So um, number one, don't put so much pressure on yourself. I think you're the only one that's ever witnessing to people. 
And number two, realize that it's a group effort and that anytime somebody hears the word, it's going to be, it's going to be fruitful, whether they ever receive it or not. Does that give you encouragement or does that, hopefully that gives you encouragement. Okay. We got 10 minutes and I want to um, look at one other passage here. Um, chapter 64 and then chapter 66. I just like the way chapter 64 starts. This is a plea for revival. Anytime that you really want revival in your life or revival in a city or revival in a nation, um, this is what you want God to do. And I, I think when we pray for revival, I don't think we really want God to do this because if we really meant what we were praying, it would f- we would have a terror fear maybe of God. So here we go. Isaiah 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Okay, do we want God to do that? Rip open the heavens and come down into our midst and the mountains quake as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your name known to your adversaries and the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down, the mountains quaked at your presence. This is talking about Mount Sinai when God came down from the mountain. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God beside you who acts For those who wait for him, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness. Those who remember you and your ways, behold, you were angry and we sinned in our sins. We have been a long time and we shall be saved. We have all become like one who's unclean and all our deeds are like a polluted garment. We are, we all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There's no one who calls upon your name who rouses himself to take hold of you for you have hidden your face from us and you've made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. That's one of the very few times, maybe you didn't know this, in the Old Testament that God is referred to as Father. Now, in the New Testament, He's referred to Father all the time. That's what Jesus calls Him. But very seldom in the Old Testament is God referred to as Father. But right here, you, O Lord, are our Father. We are the what? Clay. You are the potter. We are all the works of your hands. In verse 6, I mean, even the righteous things we do are like a polluted garment. So even the good things we do are not going to get us into a right standing with God. So when we think about revival and God coming down in majesty and glory to shake things up, He's a sovereign Father like a potter that's going to come down and do things with the clay. And it may not be the way we want Him to do it. I've always said this. When you think about a potter working at a wheel... Would you rather be in the hands of the potter, regardless of how much it hurts or shapes or squeezes, or would you rather have his hands off? What happens when God's hands are off? You go flying off the wheel or you just kind of, you know, in a lump. If God's hands are on you, he may squeeze and he may push and he may manipulate and move, but ultimately he's making something for his glory and a finished product. We often don't see the finished product, but I would rather be in the hands of the potter than not have his hands on me, even if it's painful. Does that make sense? Okay, one last place. Let's look at Isaiah 66. Didn't think you could do Isaiah in an hour and a half. Well, we're going to do it. Um, Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne, 
The earth is my footstool. What is this house that you would build for me? And what is this place of my rest? All these things my hands have made. And so all these things come to be, declares the Lord. But this is to the one whom I will look, who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Would that that would be a description of us, that we're humble, we're contrite in spirit, and we tremble at God's word. I could tell you how Isaiah ends, but it ends on a very interesting note. The very last verse of Isaiah talks about hell, of all things. Go out and look at verse 24. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. The end. Okay. It's real encouraging. <laughs> but he does talk about the new heavens and the new earth and all through this. Um, oh, let's go back. Verse 18. For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming to gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. That's, in, that's missions right there. All the nations will come and see the glory of God. I will set a sign among them. And from them I will send survivors to the nations, to Tarshish, Pool, and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, and my coastlands afar off, that have not heard my fame or seen my glory, and they shall declare my glory among the nations. What better verse is there for missions? I'm going to send missionaries to go to people who have never heard of what? The fame and the glory of God. And I'm going to declare that. And they shall bring all your brothers from the nations as an offering to the Lord on horses and in chariots and in litters and on mules and on dromedaries to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering and a clean vessel to the house of the Lord. And some of them also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says the Lord, so shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come to worship before me, declares the Lord. And then there's that verse about hell takes you to the book of Revelation where God creates the new heavens and the new earth for His people to dwell in and the eternal place of eternal conscious torment in hell for those that aren't. And so all throughout the book of Isaiah, you have this missionary theme. Isaiah is called to go. Why? Because there's people out there that don't know the glory of God, need to be told the glory of God. If, they're, if, if they die without knowing God, they will end up in hell and so, yeah, that's the, the missionary mandate of the book of Isaiah. All right. That was fast. And your minds are probably blown by such a huge book in an hour and a half. Next week, we will do Jeremiah and Hosea. And then we will possibly end up with maybe Nehemiah. I think we have two more weeks, right? Next week, and then, yeah, two more weeks, and then we're done for the summer. The question is, in the fall, do you guys want me to do my New Testament class that I teach at CCU, or do you want to do something totally different? New Testament. Okay, all right, we'll do the New Testament class then. Okay? Is that the one you were in, Terry? Okay. So you get to sit through it again. All right. Well, let's pray. Or did you guys have any questions in the last two minutes? Nothing deeper theological that we go on a rabbit trail. Yeah, Dave. Dave. I just had one thought. When you talked about the pot and the clay, 
And so that tells us that you have to be in Christ, saved with the foundation of Jesus, centered in Christ before God can do that work of, yeah, good good word. Yeah, I'm not much of a pottery person, but I knew that there was a centering. I, I think I did a sermon on this one time. I went on YouTube and looked at how do you do clay, and they talked about centering. And how, that's like one of the hardest things to do, isn't it? It's the hardest to get it on there and center. But once it's centered, then you can start, yeah, good word. All right, well, let's pray, and then we'll let you go. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you that you are the potter and that we are the clay, that you are God and there is no other, that you will not share your glory with another, and that you want your glory and fame to be reached to all the nations. And, Lord, help us to be those that proclaim your gospel, share it with the ends of the earth. Lord, warning people of the fear of the Lord, but knowing that we who have trusted in Christ can have the worship fear of loving you, of serving you, and knowing that we are precious to you because of Christ and his substitutionary atonement and his resurrection. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for your work, and we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen.